Hello and welcome to the IGH podcast. Here's a question for you. What do George Orwell, Jane Austen and Frederick Chopin all have in common? They all died of tuberculosis. Of course, in modern Britain, tuberculosis, often shortened to TB, is more associated with cattle than killing celebrities. You'd be forgiven for thinking that TB is no longer a concern in the age of widespread vaccination and antibiotics. In 2013, Public Health England recorded 7,892 cases of TB, giving a rate of 12.3 cases per 100,000 people, which is one of the highest rates in Western Europe. 70% of those cases were in people resident in the UK's most deprived areas, and 10% was found in patients with a social risk factor for TB such as homelessness or alcohol misuse. So it's apparent that TB is still present in the UK, but has switched from affecting everyone to mainly our most marginalised and deprived communities. In fact, the poorest in the UK are seven times more likely to be affected by TB than the most well-off. Between 2011 and 2017, cases of tuberculosis fell by more than a third in the UK. However, there's still plenty of work to be done. World Tuberculosis Day falls on the 24th of March each year and is designed to raise public awareness around the disease. In the spirit of this, we are dedicating this episode to discussing tuberculosis. If you're interested in finding out more about tuberculosis and the situation both globally and in the UK, you can go to several different websites, for example, tbalert at www.tbalert.org or the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease at www.theunion.org. Alternatively, for UK academics and professionals interested in tuberculosis research and service delivery, there is a network of UK academics and professionals which can be found at ukaptb.org. For more information about World Tuberculosis Day, you can visit the WHO website at www.theunion.org who.int, because it's time to end TB. With us today to talk about TB is Dr. Thomas Wingfield, an NIHR academic clinical lecturer and specialist registrar in infectious disease working at IGH. He was awarded his PhD in 2015 for a project entitled Preventing Tuberculosis in High-Risk People, which involved working with 32 shantytown communities in Peru to improve TB prevention and control. Good morning, Tom. Morning. So, first of all, what actually causes tuberculosis? So, tuberculosis is caused by a type of bacteria which is called Mycobacterium tuberculosis, and it's a slightly different bacteria to normal bacteria because it grows very slowly, and it has a big fatty coat of mycolic acid, hence the name Mycobacteria. What, what is mycolic acid, and what does that mean functionally for the bacteria? So mycolic acid is a, is a fatty acid, and that means that the bacteria's got a big coat around it, which sometimes makes it difficult, for example, uh, for drugs to penetrate it, and also means that it's quite hardy. So it has a really good environmental survival, for example? Yes. So, so, you, it, so the kind of sister bugs to mycobacterium tuberculosis, the other mycobacteria, are found... Um, throughout the environment uh, and uh, as I mentioned they're, they're pretty resistant to, to lots of conditions and as they grow very slowly that also helps with them being able to stick around. So when we talk about tuberculosis in the UK we often talk about it in relation to cattle rather than people 
is it the same bacteria that's causing TB in cattle and people, or is it a different one? Yeah, so so um, the both uh, are caused by mycobacteria, so they come from the same family, but the one in people is predominantly caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis, and the one in cattle is caused by mycobacterium bovis, so bovine or, or cattle and cows, as the name suggests. But um, as it's often noted in the media, mycobacterium bovis can spread to other animals, such as, for example, badgers, which then causes onward transmission uh, and a pool of infection um, for example, within the animal community. It's actually not that common for people to be infected with Mycobacterium bovis. It's estimated that probably less than 2% of, of all people who are thought to have symptoms of TB have Mycobacterium bovis infections. And that's because the way that Mycobacterium bovis was spread to humans previously was predominantly drinking unpasteurized milk or direct contact with animals, say through hunting, which is now less frequent. So most of the infections are now caused by Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, and what kind of symptoms does it cause in people? So, yeah, so the, the predominant symptoms that, that people get, I suppose it's, it's, it's worth mentioning, first of all, that if you inhale Mycobacterium tuberculosis and you, and you become infected, the vast majority of people actually will get no symptoms at all. And the, because the bug goes to sleep and it doesn't wake up again during that person's lifetime, so never causes any symptoms. And this is called latent TB infection, latent really just meaning dormant or asleep. However, in some people, and we can go on to discuss those people who are perhaps more at risk than others, the bug wakes up and it starts to replicate um, and then the body tries to get rid of the replicating uh, TB bug and this immune response causes inflammation um, which then leads to symptoms and the most common symptoms are cough which can last for at least two weeks and sometimes that has green spit or blood in it but not all the time, fever, night sweats and unintentional weight loss that can be profound. So you mentioned latent infection. If somebody is has a latent infection, does that mean that they can still spread the disease on or are they non-infectious? No, that's a really good, really good question. And actually, there's a lot of uh, new uh, work being done to look at the difference or when somebody moves from having latent TB infection to having TB disease, which sometimes is quite a grey area. But gem as a general rule, people who have latent TB infection, it really does mean that the bug is asleep, uh, in, usually, for example, in the upper part of your lung, and it doesn't cause any symptoms whatsoever. And, and when it's asleep, it cannot be transmitted. So people who have latent TB infection don't transmit TB. So that must cause some problems for diagnosis as well. If if the bug's asleep, it's not going to be as active, and and you probably won't be able to find it. Absolutely. So so when it, when it's asleep, all of our diagnostic tests, in terms of things like chest X-rays, or when a, a doctor or a nurse examines the patient, we won't find any any evidence of, of TB disease. Um, but it does also mean that some of the blood tests that you can do, for example, uh, there's a blood test called the uh, quantiferon test, um, which measures interferon gamma, a, a, a type of protein that goes up when you have TB infection or you've been exposed to TB. Um, they can show that, that this test is positive, but that doesn't tell us whether the person has TB infection or disease. We can only really judge that from, for example, x-rays or, or symptom screening. Are there any other challenges to diagnosis as well? Yes, so, so there are lots of, of challenges to diagnosis and treatment. And to be honest with you, they vary widely depending on which setting you work in. So, for example, in 
low income and low resource settings, which tend to have more TB because TB, the strongest driver of TB is actually poverty. The main issues that you find with diagnosis and treatment relate more to a a, a, a lack of understanding or information or knowledge about TB in the community uh, and its symptoms. And that means that people who do have the symptoms sometimes don't realise that they have the illness or don't see care. Um, and those that do see care, perhaps there is lack of diagnostic or treatment facilities and difficulty for people in accessing those facilities. For example, if it's a long way from their home or if they have to spend quite a lot of money to get there. Um, and so, so there are there are issues in terms of globally about diagnosis of, of TB um, in in high income settings. So, for example, like the UK, where we're trying to eliminate TB altogether, the main issues are, are, are similar in a way, but really focus on hard to reach or underserved groups. Um, and those can include, for example, migrants or people who have difficulties with language barriers and few economic means. It could be homeless people, people who have problems with drug or alcohol addiction um, and those living in poorer communities. I think the other thing about diagnosis and treatment we mustn't forget is about stigma. So uh, TB worldwide is still a stigmatised disease and um, having met lots of patients, uh, people who are affected by TB, it still causes families to break up, it still causes loss of work, uh, it still causes people to be thrown out of their homes. So often people are very fearful about having TB and people finding out that they have TB. I think just coming to the UK setting at the end, I think we mustn't also forget that sometimes healthcare professionals, so nurses or doctors might be uh, slow to recognise the symptoms of TB because we have relatively few cases. Uh, an example of some work we've done in Liverpool has shown that Actually, older, white, male, UK-born patients, often smokers previously, if they get symptoms that are compatible with TB, it might be felt that they have something else like lung cancer or chronic lung disease as a higher likelihood than TB. And so TB is often overlooked in that case. And I think the other major global issue that we have about diagnosis and treatment is that we, we do have a, a lack of global funding for research for TB. And we need to strengthen that and advocacy and a voice for civil society about TB and how we fight that. If you compare that to the epidemic of HIV, which has quite a, has had a lot of money in terms of research and a lot of uh, voice from within communities and civil society, I think TB really need, the community really needs to try and emulate that going forward. Sure. And if we turn to the communities that are most at risk from tuberculosis that you, you just mentioned, what kind of what kind of factors makes them more at risk apart from the fact that they're less likely to to seek treatment and diagnosis? Yes. So I think going back to the main driver of TB being poverty, uh, many of the high risk groups, which I'll go on to mention now, or the underserved groups, that their um, unifying feature is that they are uh, people from low socioeconomic position who are uh, often poorer communities. So certain groups include migrants, for example, people who come to the UK and uh, they, as we said, have issues with lang language barriers and, and accessing service um, services. But also because of the uh, countries uh, that some of the migrants come from that have a very high background rate of TB, the, the chances of, of having TB infection are, are far higher in those groups than, than other groups. Um, and for example, if uh, um, uh, a migrant coming to the UK might have issues in terms of, again, uh, poverty, poor nutrition, and sometimes overcrowding within the households, uh, which 
which they're living. Uh, um, and so I think as, as we tackle the epidemic in the UK, it does make it more likely that the uh, people who, who do develop TB disease are those with these type of risk factors. Factors. And other people, as I've mentioned before, are people like homeless people or people who have issues with um, uh, temporary or, or, or social housing, um, people with alcohol and, and drug uh, um, misuse um, and the other groups that we've mentioned, for example, people who have HIV and, and TB, HIV and TB co-infection. So. And are there biological factors as well that make people more uh susceptible to TB infection? You, you mentioned uh, when we were talking about the bacteria itself that some people had a higher risk of, of turning a latent infection into a, a, a live infection. Yeah, so just to kind of give a bit of background to that. So if you're somebody, for example, with a, a reasonable immune system, a standard Im immune system, and you do not have HIV, and you're not on any medicines that suppress your immune system, and then you're exposed to TB and you develop TB infection, latent TB infection, you have about a 5 to 10% risk over the course of your lifetime that you will then go on to develop TB disease, so the symptoms of TB. Um, whereas if you have something like HIV, which uh, impairs the immune system, you have about a 5 to 10% annual risk. So each year you have a 5 to 10% annual risk of going on to develop TB. Now, the, the, apart from obviously issues with the immune system because of illnesses or medications, I think nutrition is, is globally a huge factor which has a, a major role in how our immune system responds to different um, infections um, and assaults on, on our immune system. And TB is no different. Um, so we think that predominantly the single uh, biggest risk factor globally that if you were to remove it would have the greatest impact on reducing TB disease rates is malnutrition. And could that be malnutrition not just in terms of lack of food but not having right access to healthy food to eat for example in the UK that might be a, a bigger problem? A absolutely so so it is um, twofold. So one is protein malnutrition that you, you uh, either in a society or, or in a household that maybe doesn't have enough money to meet your your protein needs and that that might uh, impair your immune system. There's also other micronutrient deficiencies or vitamin deficiencies that may, although the evidence is, is uh sometimes controversial, may have an impact on the immune system, for example, including vitamin D. But for example, if you take certain communities that are vulnerable in the UK, we've seen the rise of the use of food banks, which is, a re is real. And if you speak to the TB community teams and the nurses, that they can tell you that uh, um, a, a substantial proportion of people affected by TB are people who do not have good food security and need to use food banks. So I think there is an issue in the UK related to, to nutrition that, that goes hand in hand with uh, poverty. So we already have uh, a vaccine against tuberculosis. And it's part of the mainstay of protecting the population. Why has it not been effective in, in preventing infection within the high risk social groups? So you're right, we, we have a vaccine which is called the BCG vaccine um, that is, is in use around the world. And the BCG vaccine, uh, which was actually developed using Mycobacterium bovis that we talked about earlier, um, is of use and it does uh, prevent certain types of TB. So for example, if you're a child who is vaccinated with the BCG vaccine, you are less likely to go on to develop um, 
some uh, extra pulmonary. So outside of the lung forms of TB or, or a form of TB called miliary TB, which is, is TB within the blood. Um, so there is some impact of the vaccine on, on those groups. However, the vaccine isn't long lasting. So if you uh, have the vaccine in childhood, it does not mean that you'll be protected against TB when you're exposed in adulthood. Um, and we know that the effect of the vaccine wanes over time. So some other countries have used the vaccine on multiple occasions and given it to people in childhood and both in adulthood. But again, actually, the vaccine, if it's used in adulthood, doesn't appear to protect people uh, or have the same uh, efficacy. Another really interesting thing about the vaccine is that the vaccine seems to be more efficacious or, or it works better in, in the more northern that you go uh, in the globe. So, for example, if you live around the equator, actually, the vaccine is less effective. Whereas if you live, say, in Scandinavia, the vaccine has been shown to be more effective. And we don't quite know the reasons behind that. There are new vaccines in, in development and some have, have shown some promise. But I think the only time will tell in terms of the scale up of those vaccines uh, and um, testing it more widely in, in human populations, whether they actually have an impact both in the short term and in the long term. And then I think we can look at in whom uh, those vaccines may be most beneficial, as you mentioned, for example, certain high risk groups. But it's not all bad news in terms of TB because we have reduced the number of TB cases in the UK over the last uh, decade. What factors have led to that reduction? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And as you said in your introduction from, from about 20 2013, there had been a real peak in, in TB cases. And actually, NHS England and Public Health England produced a joint collaborative strategy against TB from the years 2015 to 2020, which was a, a really um, a multifaceted uh, program, which included things like focus on the underserved groups we were talking about, finding and treating people who had symptoms of TB but perhaps weren't accessing care, and comprehensive screening of migrants to the UK, which included both pre-entry screening prior to entry to the UK and also screening for latent TB infection and TB disease on entry to the UK, which I think have had an effect on uh, the TB rates. Uh, there may also be, this may be accompanied by an increased awareness among communities and healthcare professionals with increased health education and promotion about tuberculosis and, and strong infection prevention and control measures, which I think you're going to cover on, on uh, perhaps a, a future episode of your podcast. And I think all this, uh, to try and not forget, this is testament really to the hard work of community TB teams, especially nurses and outreach workers and people from within communities affected by TB who are supporting the effort to eradicate TB within the UK. Now, how do those community teams work? So the community teams uh, are um, working concert really with, uh, um, for example, hospital teams dealing with secondary care and there are regional uh, TB control boards which look at all the cases that are, are uh, picked up upon in each of the regions, for example, here in the northwest region, and review those cases uh, on at least a quarterly basis to see the perhaps gaps in treatment and, and areas in which we could improve. And I think that cohort review has, has been a strength of our response to uh, TB in the UK, and that's also been facilitated by organisations like Public Health England. Um, 
And this is also helped by a national database uh, called the Enhanced TB Surveillance uh, Database, which is run by Public Health England, which we, means we now have, um, as researchers, access to um, this important information about patients, uh, um, for example, poverty status or other illnesses, but also their outcomes on treatment, which we can then use to improve in real time uh, the services that we offer to patients. So I think it's this collaboration between researchers, uh, investigators, between TB community teams, between hospitals and public health um, specialists uh, and and their all of their engagement with communities affected by tea especially those vulnerable populations which is is leading to this improvement and i hope that that, that will continue uh, in the years to come so in terms of the the local response in the uk it's quite a labor intensive and hands-on approach is the uk helping in other countries to reduce the burden of tb Yes, yeah, so so the UK and and through, for example, things like um, the uh, or, or party parliamentary group for TB and through the Department for International Development ha has actually been a real champion of uh, people affected by TB um, globally. Recently in the UK, we had uh, Nick Herbert MP, uh, who who has really been a strong voice within government for um, people affected by TB visiting and and. Um, reviewing some of the work that we're doing around the world to support people who are affected by TB. And the UK is, is a major contributor to, be, to TB research around the world, second only really behind the USA. Um, and so I think proportionally we do contribute uh, a, a high amount. I think there's a lot more that, that could be done. Um, but, but I think that the UK should be proud in terms of the, the funding that it has um, made available. But let's hope that that keeps on increasing. Sure. So the overall levels of TB fell to the lowest recorded levels in 2017, but the proportion of those cases found in people with a social risk factor increased to the highest proportion since data collection began in 2010. Why, why is that? Is it because the measures were less effective or because they were too effective? Yeah, so I think that's a, a great question. I think the answer to that is with, with any epidemic, as you are getting control of the epidemic, and especially with one like TB, which is so closely related to poverty, what you'll find is that because the background level of TB becomes so low, those people that we talked about earlier, for example, who have uh, a, a reasonable immune systems and no, no reason to have uh, an impaired immune system, uh, are less likely to A, come across TB, or if they do, less likely to be infected by TB uh, or develop disease. And so that does mean naturally in the course of eliminating an epidemic that those people who have greater risk factors, so for example, as we talked about earlier, people who are homeless, who have uh, comorbidities, so other illnesses that might uh, cause them to have TB, such as HIV or even diabetes, um, those people with, with complex uh, social situations, for example, people who are uh, migrants or prisoners or have drug and alcohol intake is issues uh, or are extremely poor, are those who are going to be more um, disproportionately affected. I don't think that that means that the PHE and NHS strategy hasn't reached those people, but I just think that it means that there will be a lot more focus needed um, on those groups in, in, in the years to come. Um, and I think that we are currently working with Public Health England, for example, in, in Liverpool, but Professor Bertie Square and I are on trying to develop the national survey of, of the economic impact of TB, um, because even though free treatment is free diagnosis, 
practices free. Actually, it costs a lot of money for people to get to clinic. It costs a lot of money because of lost income. And sometimes that leads to people perhaps to, to not be able to complete their treatment, which then has an impact on on ongoing transmission and so we're looking at measuring those uh, the economic impact and hopefully looking at ways in which we can mitigate that impact and not only the economic impact but support people socially in terms of stigma reduction that, that I, I mentioned earlier um, and letting people know that they're not alone trying to create a mutual su support uh, network for people with TB. So I think there's a long way to go but I think that we are now really looking at focusing on those high risk and vulnerable groups to ensure that we, we reach those groups and they, they get the care and attention that they deserve. Hmm. So stigma reduction was a really uh, big influence in the HIV epidemic. Um, what current work is there to, to remove the stigma of TB infection? So, so there's a lot of work going on around the world. And just to give you an example from, from work that I've done in Peru, um, in 32 shanty town communities of, of, of Lima and North Lima in Peru, uh, where about 20% uh, of people live on less than $1.5 a day, we worked with those communities to, to provide an integrated intervention for TB affected households which not only gave uh, actually economic support but also um, created um, small mutual support groups which were led by by ex-TB patients, so people who've been affected by TB but now come through their treatment, so, so champions of the cause, which talked about the issues people find uh, related to the stigma. For example, uh, as we talked about earlier, people being thrown out of their houses, losing jobs, people even being told in Lima that it, from their, their priests that it was a, a curse from, from God. And um, so, so we worked at looking at those issues and trying to say that it's not anybody's fault that you have TB. It doesn't mean that you're dirty. It doesn't. It's not anything that you've done. It's just circumstance. And then conversely, looking at the things we can do to empower ourselves as people affected by TB, for example, with information and education, knowing our rights in both society and as patients. And also, I think most strongly knowing that you're not alone knowing that there are other people who have been through this uh, situation who has lived through TB and, and completed their treatment and got better and got back into work uh, and continued their lives and I think that kind of support from the peer network is essential so uh, I think one issue about stigma that we do have globally is that it's quite difficult to measure stigma and there's no international uh, you know score for stigma so we are trying to with different research groups, including the Innovation for Health and Development Group out in Peru, led by Professor Carlton Evans, trying to kind of um, solidify and, and make uh, more um, applicable to multiple settings scores for stigma so that we actually take it on in, into account and measure it and then act on that through some of the interventions I've just mentioned. And in terms of immunity, once somebody has recovered from a TB infection, are they then immune to it? Can they reinfect so once so so, so um that's a, a good question so if you have latent tb infection uh, which is where i said the uh, organism the the, the bacteria is asleep then you can receive preventive therapy which is commonly six months of a, an antibiotic called isoniazid but once you have received that you, you are still if you are in an area that has high exposure to tuberculosis, you are not immune to tuberculosis after that. You can still pick up a new tuberculosis infection and then go on to develop the disease. And the same is the case if you've had TB disease, you've developed the symptoms, you've been treated for TB. If you come from an area that has high exposure, high background prevalence, then you still have the same risk of developing uh, TB in the years to come if you are um, 
expose the same risk factors um, going forward. So you mentioned briefly the antibiotics and a six month antibiotic course is, is very long in terms of you know, dedication from the patient, uh, but also in terms of antibiotic resistance is now emerging as a, a huge threat around the world. Um, and how, how is that threat affecting TB treatment? Yeah, so, so I think you're right, first of all, just to say that I mentioned latent TB infection preventive therapy before, which is six months. But TB treatment for the disease itself is, is a combination often of four medicines, four antibiotics that, again, last six months. Um, and, and sometimes, uh, as you mentioned, with resistance can last a lot longer than six months, up to 24 months. And if you've ever taken a course of antibiotics for, for example, a bacterial throat infection for five days, I'm sure that you can agree that it's hard even to take antibiotics for five days to the instructions that are given. And so um, when people do have issues with um, uh, adhering to their medication, which, as I said, can be exacerbated by things like their socioeconomic situation and difficulty actually getting to be observed to take the treatment, which we mustn't forget is another factor. People have to go and be observed daily taking their treatment in, in many other uh, settings. Then, then this can be an issue and people's adherence might, might not be perfect. And that and that is completely understandable given the circumstances and uh, can lead to development of resistance. There are other factors in play globally that are uh, causing issues with resistance, and that includes being able to buy uh, medications that cover tuberculosis over the counter. But these might not be, for example, four medicines which we'd use together to prevent to, to treat tuberculosis and try and avoid resistance, but just one of the TB medicines. And that greatly increases your chance of of getting a resistant, uh, developing a resistant organism. There's also issues with the public-private mix that sometimes cases uh, of people who have TB are being seen in private clinics. This especially is in, uh, for example, South Asia, and they're never being notified to public health um, authorities. And sometimes the treatment uh, is not following national guidance. Um, but the the the, the Areas of the world, I've mentioned South Asia, but there's also a problem in, in East Eastern Europe um, with high, very high resistant rates to tuberculosis, uh, of multidrug resistance tuberculosis. And in some cases, it, it's uh, the transmission uh, now of uh, multidrug resistant tuberculosis, which means resistance to two of the antibiotics for tuberculosis, which is the main um, driver for uh, uh, the multidrug resistant tuberculosis rates. and not actually uh, difficulties with adherence to treatment. And we must remember that when, once we get to those treatments for resistant tuberculosis, those treatments are much longer, as I said, up to 24 months. They're quite toxic. They can have quite a lot of side effects, uh, uh, which can be quite harmful to people. Um, and they're expensive. And so, um, and with limited availability and all of those factors add up from both the public health side but also from an individual perspective of the patient and, and their households. We are developing drug regimens that are much shorter in duration and those are being rolled out and, and tested and implemented uh, around the world but again that will be an issue about access to those medications and scale up and coverage of those medications um, but it's something to, to look forward to hopefully in the future. And is multidrug resistant TB a problem in the UK yet, or has it yet to raise its head here? So we do have uh, cases of multidrug resistant TB in the UK, um, but they make up a very small number of the overall cases um, that that we 
that we have. Um, we have strong guidelines in the UK for how to um, approach and, and manage and treat and prevent ongoing transmission for people who have multidrug resistant tuberculosis. And so comparatively, uh, compared to a global setting, our, our rates of success for treatment of uh, multidrug resistant tuberculosis are high. Uh, but if as I said, the global situation doesn't improve uh, with the measures that we're taking, then it, it seems inevitable that we will see a rise in, in the cases of multidrug resistant TB in the UK. But, but I hope that that's not the case and some of the measures start to take effect globally. And you mentioned that TB treatment requires four antibiotics. Is that a function of resistance? So we have to mix drugs in case the TB is resistant to one, or is that a function of the TB being resistant to antibiotics in, in general because of its biology and, and, and its uh, fatty acid coat that you mentioned earlier? You're absolutely right that the four, uh, the use of four antibiotics is to prevent resistance. We know that from the 1940s, for example, when streptomycin, which was the first antibiotic against TB, was introduced, that was used as a monotherapy. So it was used on its own and tuberculosis quickly became resistant to to that antibiotic and the same was found for um, antibiotics that were developed following that if they were given on their own and so combination therapy became the mainstay of treatment and so that's that's the therapy that's used today and when you have uh, cases for example that do have as you said transmitted drug resistance or, or drug-resistant TB, then you want to use a, a, a decent amount of combination um, antibiotics to prevent any further resistance accruing uh, within that mycobacteria. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's why we use four, four medicines. And some of the factors you've mentioned, like, for example, the, 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 the fatty acid coat or the slow growth of the mycobacteria or the fact that they can then hide in, in lesions within the lung, um, also contribute to, to the potential development for resistance. It's interesting that you mentioned streptomycin and how they very quickly developed resistance to that when it was used as a monotherapy. Is there something about the TB bacteria itself that makes it particularly adept at adapting to antibiotics and becoming resistant? So, so yeah, the, the, there's there's multiple things. I have to I have to say that I'm I'm not an expert in in TB uh, microbiology. My, a lot of my work is more to do with TB epidemiology. Um, but TB does have a number of a number of uh, factors that make it uh, more likely to develop resistance, which we've already mentioned, such as the, the organism itself and its coating, the the fact that it's slow growing. But also, um, one of the cardinal features of, of 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 tuberculosis is that you can get a cavity or a hole with it within the lung, where you get this buildup of inflammation, like we mentioned earlier and that forms a kind of crusting a, a coat which we call granular mater around the tb bug and it makes it very difficult for medicines to penetrate into that granular mater that and, and that hole and access the tb and actually get where they need to get uh, and so that's one of the other factors that that make the the bug itself um more uh, i suppose hardy and able to to um to avoid antibiotic penetration, to, to destroy it, and that can create problems uh, with resistance. Excellent. So there's obviously, um, we've had some success with TB eradication, but there's still plenty to plenty to do. Yeah, we, there, there is plenty to do. So still more than 10 million people uh, are affected by TB each year, TB disease, and, and that's the population of Portugal. We've got a, approximately 1.4 million people dying 
of TB each year, which is the equivalent of a jumbo jet's worth of people crashing every every two hours approximately. And actually, of the 10 million cases that we have each year of TB, 4 million of those never reach treatment. They are never diagnosed and they're never treated. So we need to identify those missing cases. And I think doing that through a multitude of different uh, uh, mechanisms, including, for example, trying to get an effective vaccine, a rollout of, of uh, preventive therapy that's targeted to those at the highest risk, uh, better TB treatment regimens, especially for drug-resistant TB, or better access to that care, that that care and prevention. But also um, addressing the social determinants of tuberculosis, as as we've done in Peru and are currently doing in Nepal, and even looking to do in the UK, uh, to support people both socially and economically to to get through TB. Uh, um, and become cured and get on with their lives. So there is a lot more to do um, that that we're all focusing our efforts on ahead of World TB Day on the 24th of March this year. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming in and putting it all in context for us and telling us a bit more about tuberculosis and what's being done to, to help combat it. So uh, it's been very interesting. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to the IGH podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also leave reviews and comments for us there. If you want to know more about IGH, you can visit the Institute's website at www.liverpool.ac.uk forward slash infection dash and dash global dash health. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at IGH Liverpool. A huge thank you as well to the Microbiology Society and the Institute of Infection and Global Health who provided the funds for the recording equipment. The music is Words We Will Remember by Josh Woodward. This track and more of his work can be found on his website at www.joshwoodward.com.